Let's read together from Romans 5, uh, verse 1, and then 6 through 10. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were still enemies, we were... What? That was... I have another verse here. You want, you want me? Okay, I'll, I'll just talk. That is what happens when you're in a rush. <laughs> and I was last night as I was copying stuff, so my mistake. Um, let's pray. Lord, now as we enter the time of focusing our minds and our hearts on your word, we ask for your help to do that. We know that there are a lot of things that would want to snatch away the thoughts and snatch away the, the truth from your word, and yet, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be able to maintain our focus on you and on your word. Lead us and guide us, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Taking a little bit of a break from uh, the book of Mark. This week and next week, uh, we'll be dealing with things having to do with the crucifixion. Uh, and then next week, the resurrection. If you've never been to our Good Friday service, I just want to encourage you to do that as a really different kind of a time where we focus on that crucifixion of the Lord. There's drama and music and, and, and prayer. Not, I mean, there's prayer too, but there's a scripture reading. And um, it's just a really great way to focus, if you will, uh, on during that time of Good Friday. <clears throat> now, religious symbols have been around for a very long time since religions came into existence. There were ways that you would identify. Um, here's the first one, which would remind us of the Jewish Old Testament and Jewish people, Star of David. Here's another one. This is Buddhism, and the Buddha is recognized as a symbol. And then this one, which is uh, in some form, the, the crescent moon and the star is related to Islam. And it's shown in many different ways. It's just shown this way in, in this picture. Now, early in Christianity, one of the very early symbols was the fish. And um, it had Greek letters in the middle of it, which if I'm, what I'm being told is true, the Greek letters stood for different for a word each, and it would be Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. That was the, the first symbol that, uh, that we had. And then shortly after that, we also had the cross that became a symbol. And uh, the cross was something that um, was, I mean, when we think about it, in Roman times, the cross was something that was considered a, a hideous thing. People hated it on one level, except they did want some people to be tortured and die on them, you know, mostly slaves and then people were, who were really dangerous and, and the Romans judged needed to be executed that way. Uh, and, and yet, as Christianity, we have, we have the cross as our symbol in many ways. And the reason for that is our Lord is the one who died on a cross. And so we remember the way that he gave his life for us. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 23 says, 
Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And yet, the cross is central. It is central to all that we believe. If we didn't have the cross and the crucifixion and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there would be no reason to be here today. And so as we go back and look at this today, as we look at just some aspects of the cross, what I'm really looking forward to and looking to, to kind of share is what's the message of the cross? What is the message there? Um, it's interesting. I, one of the things that I've noticed, and as we've done ministry for many years together, Karen and I have noticed is that many times as people get into their later, later years, maybe close to when they are going to pass, for many of them, all the filters are gone. And sometimes you see someone and you go, oh my goodness, I did not know that they were really like that. And, and that can be a sad thing. Um, there was one um, older lady that Carol had grown up knowing, and we heard that she was close to her end, and so we went to visit her, and, and um, they introduced Carol to her and said, by the way, this is, this is Carol. You remember Carol Sheldrake? And her eyes kind of glimmered a little bit like she knew who that was. And she reached out and was holding Carol's hand. And then before long, we noticed that the, she didn't know who we were anymore and didn't know who Carol was. But she sat there, patted Carol's hand, and, and, and said, do you know Jesus? What mattered to her? It's an incredible thing. If, it, if someone were to take me or take you and say, okay, what is it that really drives this person? What is it that motivates them? What is it that they, man, that they just really love and long for? What would they say? What would they say about you? What would they say about me? I hope it's going to be something like Grace said. Do you know Jesus? We're going to go ahead and take a look at the cross in three ways here this morning very quickly. Um, the first one I want to look at is that the cross satisfied God's holiness. The cross satisfied God's holiness. And many people think that the holiness of God is his central attribute, you will, or, or the, the top of all of them. And again, it's hard to say, okay, so, you know, attributes of love, mercy, goodness, grace, justice, sovereignty, how do you balance which ones are more important? And, and you really can't. And yet, when it comes to the holiness of God, it does seem to have a little different focus than all of the other, um, <clears throat> traits that, that we attribute to God. Now, Isaiah described God in this way, in, in his own calling to ministry. Um, he said in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and his train, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so you've got this, this sense of, of the wonder and the grandeur of God coming through here. And then he talks about the seraphs who are angels who are in God's presence and describes what they're like. And then in verse 3 it says, and they were calling, the seraphs were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can you imagine? I mean, this is a scene 
that as Isaiah was seeing it and, and, and going through all of this, just grabbed a hold of him. He's thinking about God being holy. Um, and, and it's repeated three times, and there's a lot of thoughts as to why that is. Uh, some people agree that it's probably because that's a, the emphasis on that. We're saying it three times, holy, 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 because that is who God is. That is what he is. Uh, sometimes when you have repetitions like that, it is to make the point even stronger. Uh, sometimes you do repetitions so that people realize, hey, wait a minute here, we're talking about God, and this is what God is. This is who God is. He's holy. Now, there's several definitions for holiness. I, I'm going to share them as we go along here, but here's one of them. Holiness means morally perfect and pure, and then set apart from all sin. So, Morally perfect and pure. There's not a blemish of sin, thought, word, deed, action. Doesn't matter. None of that was part of God, part of Jesus as he was here. So he's morally perfect and pure and then set apart from all sin would be true of God the Father as well and the Holy Spirit. Another passage is in Isaiah tells us even more. One of my favorite verses from the book of Isaiah. For the high and exalted one who lives forever whose name is holy. Okay, so on, on one level, it's not just an attribute or a characteristic, it's also his name on some level. Yeah, holy God, however you want to describe that. But he says, again, he's high and exalted one, he lives forever, his name is holy, and this God who is the, all of that says, I live in a high and a holy place. And, and this is my favorite part, with the oppressed and the lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. That's our God. Yeah, he's highly exalted. Yes, he's holy and he's above all things. But our holy God also lives with all of us who are struggling and hurting and, and wondering how we're going to make it through the day. God is there with us. What an incredible thing. I love the fact that it says his name is holy, and then in all of his holiness, this is what he does. And so, guys, God is high and exalted. He's beyond anything we could think or imagine. You read the book of Revelation, and you realize as you're reading it that John probably didn't have words that he knew to describe what he was seeing. He was doing his best with the language and words that he had, but he saw things that he had no way of saying, this, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm hearing. And so God is highly exalted. Not only that, it says he lives forever. He's eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. That's our God. And it says, he's highly exalted, lives forever. His name is holy. And the bottom line from the other verse, he's holy, holy, holy. And then he dwells in heaven, but also with, the oppressed, the lowly, the discouraged, the humiliated, all of those things. When people are, when we're feeling in, in, in that kind of a way, God's there. God is there. Um, and he revives the lowly uh, to encourage, to cheer, to restore the crushed spirit, to revive the oppressed. All of that is what our holy, amazing 
higher than all of we could imagine, God, that's what he does. That's who he is. Exodus 15, 11, Moses was praising God because he had delivered them from the Egyptian army that was chasing them. And Exodus 15, 11 says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? And the answer to be, that is expected is absolutely no one. That's the answer that's expected as this was being written. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? No one. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Incredible. And sometimes we, we think of the holiness of God and we think, well, yeah, he's pure, he's perfect. And we, and, and we just don't think much about it. But there's an exaltedness to this. There's a sense of awe that should come as we realize his name is holy and it's who he is on a very fundamental, basic level. And, and that is what he wants us to know about him. Another uh, definition here about the holiness of God would be holiness requires absolute moral purity and being separated or, or being separate from a fallen creation. Okay, so he created, it was perfect, it fell, and now you've got the curse and you've got sin. And so God is holy and he's apart. He's pure in every single way. And he's separate from his, his creation. He's over it and he sustains it and all those other things. And someday there will be a redemption of all of that, including the creation. Everything will be made new. But until then, there's that sense of the fallen creation around us. So when we see God and his holiness and we're confronted with our own sinfulness, that's the part that, that kind of always hits me. Okay, so God's holy. And, and that's what hit Isaiah. Hey, you're so holy. What am I doing here? You know, and that's when the, the seraph came and touched him with the coal and said, okay, I'm, I'm calling you. I want you to, to, to work for me. Um, and so here we are, and we're wondering, God is holy and I'm sinful. How do we take care of that? Well, that's the cross. That's where God took care of that. That's where he took all of the sin of the world and had Jesus pay for it. So that when we put our faith and trust in him, those sins aren't there for us anymore. They've been paid in full. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was praying and he said, let this cup pass from me. And, and, and I'm sure he partially was thinking of, okay, I'm going to be scourged and, and I'm going to be abused and badly treated and then I'm going to get nailed to a cross. And I'm sure he, he understood all of that and what it meant. But I think maybe even on a deeper level, he was thinking about the fact that as a pure son of God, the hideous sins of the world were going to be poured out on him. Think of the worst thing you can imagine and then understand Jesus suffered for those sins. He paid the price for those sins. I think the other part that was going through his mind as he was thinking about the cross sure was the being, you know, just inundated with sin, but the other was the fact that at some point when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when God the Father turned his face away, because it tells us that God cannot look on sin with favor. And even though this was part of the plan and he had to pay the price for it, and, and God the Father was with Jesus up until that point where 
the full price had to be paid and he had to suffer for all of those sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus paid the price. If there's a huge list of all of the things that I've done or you've done and all the things we've thought, all the things that we've said that are sinful, it's as, as if Jesus took that list and said, I've got this. It's not yours to carry any longer. It's been forgiven. And so he forgave our sins. God turned away from his son so that he could turn to us, towards us, and say, there's forgiveness. Sins have been taken care of. If you will believe, you can be forgiven and be changed and made my son and daughter. So what God, God did this for us, and, and when we think about that, a holy, pure God, having all of the evil and sin of the world poured out on him, that should take our breath away. Because he did that for me, and he did that for you. And one of the reasons we celebrate communion is to remember that, regularly remember that. So at the cross, we see God's holiness is satisfied, and we also see his love is demonstrated. There's a song that uh, Karen and I used to sing. um, I'm just going to quote one little part of it here. Almighty cross, O Christ so pure, love held him there. You ever want to know what kept Jesus on the cross? And it's very clear he could have come down anytime he wanted to. He could have called for angels. He could have done anything. Love held him there. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the soldiers. Love held him there. Almighty cross, O Christ so pure, love held him there. Such shame endured. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. Isn't that amazing? Great words. Romans 5, 6 through 8. Paul says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly care to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time, at just the perfect time, those of us who were powerless uh, to make any kind of changes, any way that we could approach God on our own, we we couldn't do anything. We were destined for hell. That's what our destiny was until Jesus came and demonstrated his love by dying instead of us. I don't know about you, but I can honestly say that I didn't seek God. Yes, I was raised in a Christian home and all the rest, but the reality was it wasn't me going, oh man, I can't, you know. That wasn't it. And God touched my heart. And he drew me to the point where I I thought, you know, I've got to take care of this. And I was able to talk with my parents and understand more deeply what it meant to believe and, and receive God's gift of salvation. I love the fact that God seeks after us. I mean, the cross is that symbol, and that cross is there to always remind us of, of what Jesus has done. 
and why he did it. You know, God didn't look us over and say, well, you you are going to be such an amazing asset to the kingdom that I want you. None of us were going to be an asset to the kingdom. But he did say, I want to save you. And if you will surrender to me and live for me, I would love to be able to use you. He doesn't need us. There are all kinds of ways that the infinite God of the universe could have done things. But he chose to use weak symbols, weak people, weak, you know, servants. And that's us. So the more we are closer to him, the closer we get to him, the more we surrender to him, then yes, we can, we can walk more closely and, and be involved in what he has called us to do. Because he loved us, Jesus came, lived, died on a cross, was buried, and was resurrected. It's interesting, I, I came across this quote, one of my favorite books, a um, couple of books by Max Lucado, are about the crucifixion are some of my favorite. Just simple writing about um, about the crucifixion and about what Jesus went through. He chose the nails as one of them, and no wonder they call him a savior is another one that I really enjoy, just devotionally. And this is a quote from one of those. The journey to Jerusalem didn't begin in Jericho, you know, as they came down the, the river and then went up from Jericho to Jerusalem. didn't begin in Galilee. It didn't begin in Nazareth. It didn't even begin in Bethlehem. The journey to the cross began long before as the echo of crunching fruit was still sounding in the garden of Eden. Jesus was leaving for Calvary. It had already been decided. All of this, the fall didn't catch God by surprise. You know, it, 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 it came And it brought the curse, it brought sin, it brought death. But God already knew, and it had already been decided that Jesus would come, that he would live, and that he would die. During the Civil War, there were um, a father and two sons from the north who went to fight the war together. And at Gettysburg, the father and the oldest son were killed, leaving the younger son, and he knew that his mom and his sister were back on the farm trying to make it with just the two of them, and he knew how hard that would be. So he went to the commanders of his um, part of the army and said, hey, listen, I, this is what's going on in my family. My dad and brother just got killed here. We've given what we could. Can, can I get released so that I can go home and take care of my family and the farm? And they said, no, you can't do that. That takes a presidential warrant or a presidential um, letter to do. He said, but if you want to go down and check and see if that, you can get to that, you go ahead. And so he went down to Washington, D.C., and he got to the White House, and he went up to the doors, and there were guards there, and he said, I, I need to talk with the president, and they kind of laughed at him and said, that's not happening. And he said, well, listen, I have to. I have to get to him in order to, to make this happen. And he told him the story, and he said, no, sorry. So he went out and was sitting at a bench and just kind of in total agony, not knowing what to do next. And a little boy came along and said, hey, what, what's wrong? And um, what's going on with you? And so he kind of sat by the soldier that he looked at, and, and, and he said, tell me what's going on. And so, the little, so he told him the story. 
And the little boy said, well, come with me. And he grabbed his hand and started walking. He walked back to the White House, and the same guards who had turned him away stood aside as he walked through with his little boy. And then he went ahead and kept going with him, and he saw generals and others who would come by. Nobody said a word. He just kept on going. Finally, he came up to a closed door, and the boy just opened it and walked in. And President Lincoln was there with his, one of his generals planning some of the things that were going to happen. And the president said, Todd, who's, who's your friend? And he said, Dad, this man needs to talk to you. And he did. And he got the letter. He was able to go home. You know, on a lot of levels, that's what happens when we're struggling and hurting and don't have any idea what to do or where to go. It's like going to Jesus. And you know what? We don't have to find anybody to take us there. We go right to him. And he has the power and the authority and the love and the grace and the mercy to deal, to deal with us right where we are. Ephesians 2.13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. It's the death of Jesus Christ that gives us that opportunity to enter into a relationship with, with God and to experience the love of God in ways that we never would otherwise. God showed his love and mercy and grace at the cross. And so at the cross we see God's holiness is satisfied. We see that God's love is clearly displayed and demonstrated, and we also see that the power of God is clearly shown. The cross is where God settled the, settled the statement or the rule, if you will, of who will rule the universe. And God was ruling, but Satan was trying to overrule and trying to do everything he could to destroy that. At the cross, he showed Satan and everybody else, I'm the one who rules. I have that power. I I wonder if Satan didn't think when Jesus actually died on the cross, I wonder if he thought, wow, I I won. As he watched, as they put him in the grave and rolled the stone and sealed him, I mean, I don't know, he's not omniscient, that's one thing for sure. And, and uh, you know, Jesus died, and he, he's the one that made all that happen, and now he's in the grave. I wonder if he thought, yeah, this is going to be okay. Um, of course, it didn't take long for him to discover that that wasn't the case. But think about that. Who rules the universe? Well, Satan would like to, but Jesus made sure that that would never happen. Let's look at some verses from Colossians 2. Paul, writing to that church, says, You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. You were dead. He made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. 
In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Isn't that incredible? I mean, think, of that. think of what's being said here. You know, first of all, we're, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, now, now we're alive. We're not dead any longer. Um, our sin nature, we still struggle with, but it's, you know, it's technically dead. We just resurrect it every now and then when we're dis- disobedient, but, but it's been paid for. We are in Christ, and the gospel made us alive with Christ. He forgave our sins. And I love the imagery of canceling the record. There are several ways that that's described. One is that it's a certificate of debt, that you owe something, and that Christ comes along and takes the certificate of debt and nails it to the cross, and it's paid in full. You no longer owe anything. Uh, Others describe it as there's a list of charges against us, and, and the charges are all true. We've done or said or acted out in all those ways. And Christ takes that list when we believe on him and that he died for us. He takes that list and he nails it to the cross. That's it. It's over. And that cannot come back in any way, shape, or form. As far as the east is from the west, that's where, the, that's where our sins have gone. And so the Colossians were dead in their sins just like us. And God made them alive through Jesus Christ by faith in him. And then the charges made against us, our sins, that causes us to fall short of God's glory and short of salvation and short of making sure we're going to be condemned at some point. All of that's taken care of when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and those things are nailed to the cross. They've been taken care of. That's why one of my favorite, uh, I had a small lapel cross at one time and it had a, a little statement on it saying paid in full. I love that because that's what happened. At the cross, my sins were paid in full. I owe nothing. I owe nothing. Remember the old song, Jesus paid it all? (laughs) All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed them white as snow. This whole scenario was also prophesied in Genesis where... um, Jesus said, you know, the serpent is going to bite the heel of the woman's seed, which was a reference or prophecy about Jesus Christ, and uh, that he would die. But then it says that Jesus Christ would crush the serpent's head. And so that's all being portrayed here as we see that. Now, just real quickly, three things that I want us to look at here through the cross of Jesus. Through the cross of Jesus, the powers and authorities are disarmed. They have no power over a Christian. Um, through the cross of Christ, those things have been, you know, put away. Through the cross of Christ, a spectacle was made of them. Uh, it's as if Jesus paraded them through heaven and hell and changed because they are bound. Uh, and then there's the whole idea of him triumphing over them, um, Again, just he rose from the dead. And if Satan had thought maybe he had won, now he knew not a, not a chance. Not a chance. Um, you've lost. <clears throat> it used to be when I'd watch an NFL highlights and there would be a team that was supposed to win. You know, they were so much better. 
But when the underdog won, well, the statement they would make was, that's why you play the game. Because it's not, it's not a done conclusion just because you forecast it. And on some level, if you will, when Jesus went to the cross, it was, okay, that's why we play the game. I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I will rise again. And Satan learned, nope, you didn't have a chance. In the case of Jesus Christ, the predictions were made all through the Old Testament, and they came and did what had to be done, suffered the suffering that he had to go through, and when he rose, it was with a victory. He won over all. And so Jesus Christ has won the victory. And so it's at the cross we see his holiness is satisfied, his love is demonstrated, and his power is clearly shown. So the question then is, how do we respond? How do we respond to the cross of Christ? And I'm just going to give some opposites for us to think through. The cross demands a response from me and from you. It can come, I can come to the cross and kneel before the Lord of heaven, believing that he died for me. Or I can turn and walk away from the cross and say, this is a bunch of nonsense. I refuse to, to think about it. I can let the cross change me by believing I've been bought and paid for and, and, and that I have the Holy Spirit living in me and I have his word to instruct me. Or I can let the cross harden me by refusing to even consider any of this and just saying, hey, this, this business about Jesus dying, I, I don't care. I don't believe it. I can turn to Jesus Christ, God over all, and ask him for forgiveness and to be restored because I've messed up and I've done something that I shouldn't have and the relationship is restored and I'm cleansed and made whole again. Or I can turn away in defiance, rejecting God's love and mercy and grace and say, I don't want any part of that. I can accept the new life that he that flows from the cross, or I can reject Christ Jesus and receive God's eternal judgment. And choice is mine, choice is yours. We cannot come to the cross and walk away unchanged. Because the cross is there to remind us always of the price that was paid and of the freedom we can have if we will come to God through the cross. So the choice is mine, choice is yours. But we cannot come to the cross and walk away unchanged. And <clears throat> just want to share this. When we come to Jesus in faith, believing he died for us, we recognize we need a Savior. That's why we come. I'm a mess. I need to be saved. We thank him for his forgiveness. We, by faith, receive the gift that he's promised us, of salvation. And it's at that point when we put our belief and trust in Jesus Christ to save us that we enter a relationship with God. And if that's not something that you can say, yeah, I remember when that happened for me, then I want to just challenge you. This morning, think about what the cross means. Every born-again Christian starts the relationship with God at the foot of the cross. That's where we all start. I came across this quote. I kind of like the thought that's there. Bowing at the foot of the cross, we are all the same. We are forgiven sinners. Nothing more, nothing less. And that's where, that's where we need to be regularly going back and saying, yeah, just remember what Christ has done and remember what he's done for me. 
That song, Almighty Cross, I'm just going to finish by quoting it. And um, a couple of the verses talk about love of Christ. Almighty Cross, love lifted high, the Lord of life raised there to die. And then sacrifice on Calvary made the mighty cross a tree of life for me. Second verse, Almighty Cross, that throne of grace, he knew no sin, and yet he took my place. Third verse, O mighty cross, O Christ so pure, love held him there, such shame endured. Fourth verse, O mighty cross, my soul's release, the stripes he bore have bought me peace. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for... Your word, we thank you for the fact that uh, we take time to remember what you did for us on the cross, and we thank you for that. And as we enter this time of um, thinking about the death of Christ and then also rejoicing in the resurrection, we pray that you would help us in this next week to, to be thinking through those things and what that means. We thank you and we praise you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name that we say amen.